Hey, Token CEO listeners, you can find every episode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. For us, golf is simple. It's a chance to get out and have some fun with our friends. But inevitably, little things have a way of ruining it. The group ahead is taking forever. You can't find the fairway with a map. And the Bev cart is nowhere to be found. And the best way to make a bad day better is Fireball Whiskey. You get their nips, the little shooters. They are great. Makes bad day way, way, way better. Make sure to grab the new Fireball Birdie Shot Club. It's literally a golf club filled with Fireball Nip. Put it in your bag. It'll fit right in that side pocket. Drink Fireball Nips and have a great time on the golf course. Sorry, you guys. One second. This is episode 67 of this podcast. Quick reminder, we're only doing this thing on Tuesdays and on Thursdays. Uh, So you get a a little bit of a longer episode. We're not pretending this thing is a 10-minute job anymore. And we're trying a few things out, which is an interview plus a deep dive onto a topic. So give us your feedback and send us your thoughts. We are basically deconstructing what's happening in business, technology, media, and obviously my world and what's happening at Barstool Sports. So before we get into today's podcast, I am going to California this week. I'm fired up about it. I have not been on a plane in, I don't know, four and a half months, maybe at this point. Um, That kind of stuff generally can create a little anxiety though. So if you get anxiety, you want to chill out, if your muscles are freaking out, if you just want to relax, I highly recommend Tribe. I've tried their oils. I've tried their gummies. Everybody knows I'm a big fan of the therapy cream. I have not tried the beverages, but I would be curious about the the beverages from Tribe. What I love about Tribe is it's full spectrum CBD. So in layman's terms, what what that means is it's the best kind of CBD. So it's whole plant extraction. It's way more effective. It's a better end product. This is like getting the shitty celery juice from the heat processor versus a cold pressed celery juice. So I love Tribe CBD. If you want to take CBD, go to tribecbd.com and use code Barstool for 10% off for your order. We love Tribe CBD over here. It's high quality and the stuff works. And that's really all I ever care about. So that's Tribe CBD. Okay. So today we got two things going on. Um, If you missed our episode from Tuesday, that was a hotly contested episode. Uh, We talked about what is happening around cancel culture. We talked about what's happening around race. And we talked with HR Stephanie about what's been happening the last two weeks at Barstool and where we are going from here. Today's a very different episode. What I wanted to go through are really two things. One is an interview with our friend, John Taffer. John Taffer does Bar Rescue. He's an entrepreneur. He is one of, I would say, the foremost experts in the restaurant industry. He's also a great guy. He's a great person. He's a good friend of the Barstool family. And one of the things I love about John Taffer is that he's just no bullshit. So John Taffer tells you tells you what it is like it is. Some people don't like that. Other people like it a lot. He's a person who understands intimately how to get a reaction. And so we have him and he gives us all sorts of perspective on what's happening with coronavirus, what's happening in the restaurant industry, some of the innovations he's making within his own restaurants. And then as always, his perspective on Barstool Sports. Um, But before we get into that, I wanted to talk about gaming. So for anyone who pays attention, we launched an esports team 
I don't know, maybe three weeks ago, we launched an esports team. We've had Smitty doing um, and creating content for a brand called Game Time for probably about the last two, two and a half years, I would say. It's frankly been something Dave and I haven't put a whole lot of effort or energy into and really no one was ever paying attention to. We started to really notice something happening, I want to say two summers ago when Fortnite was really starting to peak. You would find memes everywhere of just the Fortnite map. And Smitty was gaming all night and then coming into work and blogging uh, during the day. And you could, you could kind of see that there was this different culture around gaming that was starting to take form and take shape. The level of interest in gaming was starting to be something that transcended the game itself. So there's a lot happening right now in the same way there's a ton happening in the podcast industry and there's a lot happening around streaming video. There is a ton happening around gaming. So let's dive into gaming. So basically, uh, there's four major players right now. There's Twitch, which is owned by Amazon. There's YouTube, which is obviously Google. There's Facebook. And then there's Mixer, which is a gaming platform that's owned by Microsoft. The reason this is timely today is that Ninja, who is arguably the biggest streamer, biggest gamer in the world, biggest gaming celebrity out there, streamed yesterday on YouTube for the first time. In the same way that YouTube tried to buy celebrities or uh, influencers to only make content on YouTube, and Spotify is buying people like Joe Rogan and The Ringer to be exclusive on, on Spotify, the same thing is happening with gamers. So in 2019, Ninja signed a deal to leave Twitch which was a massive, massive move for him. He left all of his audience. He left his entire community to make the jump to Mixer, which is Microsoft's product. I think Mixer paid him, rumors are $30 million to make that switch. So he left Twitch to go game exclusively on Mixer. And the big thing about streamers overall, in the same way as it is for podcasters, is not only are they playing the game and they're playing the game to win, but they're also nurturing massive, massive communities. They're building massive fandoms. They want them to buy merch. They want them to come watch them or support them at live events. There are ad deals all, all woven into these players. So when a, when a player or a gamer or personality for that matter, leaves one platform to be exclusive on another, the platform is basically not only buying that personality, him or herself, but they're buying all their audience and they're making the bet that the audience will follow. And so we'll get to this in a minute, but what you, you saw this week and over the last couple of weeks in gaming is that when a platform takes on any personality or buys a personality, their bet is that the fans of that platform will go have an affinity, spend time, spend money, engage, subscribe, and be loyal to the next platform they're on. Now, in the case of Ninja going to Mixer, Mixer bombed. Like, the bet didn't work. It didn't work out. And for Ninja, what that meant at the end of the day was that he be ultimately, which is kind of sensational, he became a free agent. And essentially, for all of the millions, the tens of millions of dollars he was paid by Mixer to go bring people to his platform, he now still has all that cash. 
and now he's free to play wherever he wants. So you're seeing the rise of the gaming superstar. You're seeing gaming platforms, which we'll get into in a second. You're seeing gaming platforms play the same personality wars that you're seeing podcast platforms or TV platforms or radio platforms or video platforms engaging in. So super interesting time in gaming. Just to give folks some, some background is, you know, if you look at Twitch, um, Twitch is owned by Amazon. Twitch was bought by Amazon in 2014 for, I think, around $970 million. So in the same way that Google bought YouTube to get into video, Amazon bought Twitch to get into gaming. At that time, so in 2014, Twitch accounted for about 40% of all live streaming on the internet. They are poised right now to surpass about 40 million monthly active viewers um, in, in 2021. So Twitch is really the original platform. In gaming, Twitch is the original platform. They're the home of almost every big name in gaming is on Twitch. And it's, the, it's ground zero. It's the place where they all started from. Now, what's interesting, similar to Apple and Spotify in this case, is Twitch didn't make anyone beholden to the platform. So in the same way that Barstool Sports on Apple Podcasts or Joe Rogan on Apple Podcasts, they're not paid to be on that platform. It's just the biggest platform. But what you're seeing happen in the last two years is that the biggest personalities, the biggest gamers are now starting to shop themselves around One, because they know they're worth a great deal of money. Two, they have massive audiences. And three, they're just fucking good at what they do. So that's kind of where Twitch sits in the ecosystem. All right, so that's Twitch. When you look at YouTube, which is also a platform that's been around for a very long time, Twitch, you know, and in relationship to one another, Twitch was really the live streaming platform. So if you're going to play and you're playing live, obviously, you're playing on Twitch. What YouTube created was a second platform for all these players and personalities, whereby they would cut up all of their highlight clips, creating commentary over their games and running those on YouTube. So YouTube today is a massive, massive home for gaming content. It's less known or less developed in being a massive streaming platform for for gaming content. You know, what's changed from YouTube is YouTube was always the biggest library of video content. And that's really always been YouTube's point of view and aspiration. Now what they're getting into is the streaming game. So what they've been starting to do is to make investments in streamers to sign them away from Twitch. So they have Courage JD. He's a Fortnite streamer and broadcaster. They have Valkyrie and PewDiePie, who PewDiePie actually is is quite well known and I think has crossed over into celebrity and internet culture. Um, There's all sorts of gaming and streaming personalities on YouTube who are building their own subscriptions. They're building their own platforms and channels. They're trying to drive as many subscriptions as humanly possible. And now what YouTube is trying to do is to convince them to not just put their highlights and clips and commentary there, but to stream there as well last one is Facebook gaming. So Facebook gaming was kind of like new to the mix. It's not nearly as old. It's not nearly as entrenched in the gaming community as Twitch or YouTube. 
Facebook Gaming launched a couple years ago. They've been trying to attract players and talent to the platform. Uh, they've actually separated the gaming platform from Facebook proper, which was probably a good move to attract a very loyal and a formerly niche audience, but certainly very passionate and very particular audience. Um, they too have signed several notable streamers to be part of their platform. You know, I, I would say Facebook is a late breaking player into the game. We'll see how successful they are in signing talent. This has not historically been Facebook's strong suit. One of Facebook's biggest challenges is that they're kind of everything to everyone. So they are something to no one. Um, and then finally, you know, one of the bigger questions I have around streamers and gaming in general is that if you're a streamer, if you're a ninja, or your Nick Merckx. Nick Merckx and, and the Pardon My Take guys have been having a love affair since the Pardon My Take guys got on, got on Twitch in earnest, been a guest on Pardon My Take. But one of the interesting things is that you're basically showing your brand, your personality, your commentary, playing a game. And in this case, the game is owned by someone else. So the game is owned by Activision Blizzard. The game is owned by some third-party game developer. And what's different is if you were to look at Barstool Sports and you were to look at, at NCAA football, not the video game, but the real game, or you're looking at NFL fo football or the NBA, Barstool would never be able to take a clip of us showing the game and us broadcasting and commenting on the game, that content would never be considered ours because the game itself is owned by the league. And what's interesting here is that historically, gamers have been able to take their gameplay, their commentary, their personality, and do whatever the fuck they want with it. They can take it from one platform to another. They can monetize it in a whole bunch of diverse ways, but it is considered their content. And so one question I have is as gaming gets more popular and more importantly, as gaming gets more lucrative, how are the game developers going to, going to play in this ecosystem? Does Twitch own the content? Does Activision own the content? Or does Ninja own the content? And who gets what cut of the monetization throughout? So I think that's a big question that remains to be seen. So speaking of how gamers make money, so there's a whole bunch of ways streamers make money. One is that there's programmatic advertising. God bless programmatic advertising. So that's the horrid little display buttons and banners that you see floating around the entire web. So Streaming is no different. Streamers make, a mon make money by getting a percentage of all of the programmatic revenue that runs on their channel. YouTube runs, runs this way with video advertising. Streaming channels are no different. The second way they make money is through subscriptions. So Nick Merckx, for example, he has 50,000 subscribers. It's free to watch Twitch, but if you want to and you feel so inclined or so motivated, or you feel that the product is good enough, exclusive enough, different enough, or compelling enough, you can subscribe to specific streamers at different price points. And those generally range from, let's say, five bucks to 20 bucks. On Twitch in particular, as well as on YouTube, is subscribing is really seen as a behavioral thing. Podcasts aren't that different. When you subscribe to a podcast, you're showing that you have an affinity for that podcast. And you're also, in the case of streamers, showing that you are willing to make a donation. 
There's no paywall in streaming. There's no stores within a streaming environment. So the way that the players have generally made money is by collecting as many subscriptions as possible and receiving as many donations as possible. Another way Amazon does it is when Amazon purchased Twitch, it integrated Prime into the platform. So if you're a Prime member, I'm a Prime member, you get a free subscription to a streamer every single month. So Amazon is creating incentive for its grocery shoppers, the Whole Foods shoppers, the Amazon shoppers, the Prime video viewers. If you belong to Prime, you also get gaming benefits and you get access to streamers for free. And then the last one, which is ever, you know, the most predominant revenue model on the planet is advertising. So on the advertising front, the streamer is going to share the revenue that the platform sells, right? So Twitch Salesforce is going to go sell a bunch of ads against, you know, let's say Ninja's or formerly Ninja's channel. Ninja can pull the American Idol routine whereby he has a Coca-Cola next to him as he's playing the game. So there's integrations. I think those can probably be sold by the streamer himself or in some cases by the platform. The more interesting business model in streaming is donations. So what Twitch has is essentially a donation service. So donations on Twitch are called bits. Um, Streamers can can work directly through Twitch for that, or they can use third-party services one example is a company called Streamlab, which give people the opportunity to donate direct to the streamer. So one of the things that's interesting, this is a business model that hasn't actually worked in music. They've tried to make it work in music with Patreon, is that donations are considered a very viable, very acceptable Um, very mainstream way for a streamer to monetize. And there's infrastructure being built around how, how streamers collect donations. Bringing it back around to this week. So yesterday you saw Ninja streaming on YouTube uh, to give a little bit of history on the Mixer deal. So I worked for Microsoft. Uh, It doesn't actually surprise me that much that Microsoft couldn't make a gaming platform work. That's so rude, but I kind of feel that way. So um, All right, so Mixer was launched in January 2016. It was originally called Beam. It was a live streaming platform. It was bought by Microsoft and and ultimately renamed Mixer. I would say from 2016 to 2019, Mixer built up, you know, fairly modest gaming population, but certainly very passionate gaming platform and gaming community. It was extremely small when you look at what was happening on Twitch or what was happening on YouTube, the Mixer community, the amount of players on Mixer, the personality and streamers on Mixer was infinitely small. Uh, Last August, about a year ago, Ninja announced, which was pretty much an earth-shattering deal, that he had signed an exclusive with Mixer and that he was going to be up and leaving Twitch. I remember Rich Greenfeld was going crazy. Like There was a lot of discussions about what was happening in gaming and really a watershed moment where a very significant player was going to leave a very big dominant platform and stream solely and exclusively on a much smaller platform. Uh, He went from, just to give a sense of proportion, Ninja went from having 14 million followers on Twitch to 2.4 million on Mixer. So like a massive, massive decline in followers. At the same time, 
Mixer signed a second talent. So this is very, very much like Spotify. I think Spotify has just like backed up the Brinks truck and brought on as many people as possible. Mixer wasn't that different. So they got Ninja, they got the King, then they needed to bring a Prince. They got Shroud. Um, He signed a deal, let's say it was anywhere between like eight and $13 million. According to Stream, which is a metrics company, he lost 85% of his viewers when he made the switch. So there is a real opportunity cost to the personality or the gamer or the streamer or the star when they move from one platform to another. So I think that there were two things that made this really watershed. One is that these guys are fucking legit. Like streamers are big. They're a force to be reckoned with. They are going to command massive, massive investments. And two is that the, the streaming wars and the, you know, there's streaming wars, there's podcast wars, and we're in the middle of gaming wars. I think what's interesting now is you're seeing the first company that made a foray into a gaming war fail. And now as a result, you have a very empowered creator base. You have very empowered streamers. And you probably have a lot of reticence from the platforms in terms of who's going to invest next, what are they going to invest, and how. So, you know, just in summary, and before we get to John Taffer, I think there's a couple of things that are interesting about this. One is, uh, it's a question of audience. And I think that there's, it's very easy to make an assumption that audience will always follow, right? Mixer's bet was that Ninja's audience and Shroud's audience would follow, And it either they didn't follow, you know, going from 14 million to 2.4 would say they didn't follow. And then the second thing is that they either didn't stick or not enough people followed them. So the power, you know, audience is really at the end of the day, what does and will always matter. If you have audience, you are powerful. I think the second piece that's very interesting is that streaming is here to stay. Streaming is going to become even more mainstream even more cultural and significantly more lucrative as advertisers look to put dollars into platforms that are actually growing, you know, versus platforms that are in decline. It's going to be one of the highest engaging, highest reach, high performing platforms for them. When you look at someone like Ninja, I was reading something, I think earlier this week, I think Ninja streams like 16 hours a day. That could be an exaggeration, but these guys are making content for tens of thousands of hours. And it's so interesting because you can see if you're going to spend tens of thousands of hours of something, look at Dave Portnoy, right? Dave Portnoy has spent tens of thousands of hours on the internet. You're going to put that kind of time into something, the audience that you're going to grow is going to be that much bigger and that much more powerful. So when you look at movie stars or you look at TV celebrities or you look at people from traditional linear platforms, they're never going to have that because they don't have that number of hours. Even on TikTok, like Charlie is putting hundreds of hours into making TikToks, but she's not putting in 16 hours a day of exposing herself on her platform to her fans, talking to them, engaging with them, creating a community with them. So I think gaming is an industry to watch, a platform to watch. I don't know about you. I hate having a hangover. Having a hangover sucks. I used to be able to like plow through a bunch of drinks and be fine the next day. And now I feel like the older I get, like the longer the hangover lasts, it sucks. It's not fun. I don't enjoy it. 
and there's a way that I can avoid it and you can avoid it too. So if you're going to go out and have a bunch of drinks, one, if you're a Barstool employee, I'd appreciate it if you don't tweet. But second, if you're going to do it, if you take DHM detox, you can pop two vitamins. They're vitamins. They've been proven. They've been used for years in Asia. And basically that what the vitamins do is they help break down the toxins from alcohol in your body. So you pop two vitamins, uh, you go on with your night, you do your thing, you make good choices. You don't do anything stupid. You lay off of Twitter, especially late at night. And then the next morning you wake up feeling fine. You don't have a hangover. You don't have any regret about what you tweeted. Um, and ultimately you can go on and have your great day. So if you want to try DHM detox, go to nodayswastedco.com. That's nodayswastedco.com and use code Erica for 20% off. All right. John Taffer is one of those people where after you talk to John Taffer, you're like, yeah, no shit. I shouldn't have thought about that. Or it just makes you feel like you've just gotten a stern talking to from like the funniest, most stern, no bullshit version of your dad. And so that's kind of how I think about John Taffer. He's like the great uncle of Barstool Sports where he tells us where we're fucking up when we're fucking up and how to do it better. Excited. I'm leaving tomorrow in my bus for a two week trip. No way. Where are you going? And I'm driving to see my daughter and my grandson, okay. who is, it's his year birthday. Uh, but in my bus, I have bathrooms and freezers. And so I only have to leave to get gas once every thousand miles. Or to walk really? It's a completely self-contained bus. Oh, yeah. It's 45 feet. So I'm going to go cross country in quarantine. Good and, for you. Uh, I'm so happy you're here. All right. So John Taffer, you talk a lot about selling yourself and pitching. And, you know, one, we have a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are young entrepreneurs or they're in a corporate environment right now and they want to get out or they're trying to better sell or pitch their product. But just to help people become more familiar with you, like what would your 30 second elevator pitch be? Well, understand you're not selling anything. You're creating reactions. And reactions is what causes people to like you, not like you, write your checks, not write your checks, choose to be your partner, not to choose your partner. Don't focus on what you're doing as much as focus on their reaction and become the master of their reactions. Then you'll become the future. I love that. And that's such a good thing because I think if you're too self-absorbed or worried about you and you don't think about the listener or the end user, it you, you end up crossing wires or you end up not being that compelling in the first place. Yeah, my first book, uh, uh, Raise the Bar, was about reaction management. And I know we've talked about this before, but the, it all started when I was young. My mother was tough, Erica. So, so if she was in a bad mood, there were consequences for me, if mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying. So I learned at a very young age to be very sensitive to the way she was reacting. And starting to use tools like a joke or funny or being cute whatever, to try to break that reaction that she was in. So three, four, five years old, I'm, I'm constantly manipulating and watching and being sensitive to these reactions and stuff. So it grew up part of me because of that. But uh, I'm very sensitive to those things. I think it's also what makes you so convincing and compelling. Like when we did the big brain and you and Dave, Dave, Mike Rapoli or me were mixing it up in the on the bench. And 
it's, I think, one thing to judge things, and it's another thing to give feedback, but you could really see that what was so different about you at that table was that you were trying to elicit reactions. And that, I think, was helping you decide, hey, this is a person worth betting on or a person not worth betting on. So what are the type of things that you do to elicit reaction? It's interesting that, that you notice that in that kind of way, because you know, if you brought me a mediocre deal, I'd probably do it because I think you're so dynamic. And I think that, you know, you would take this over the edge. So give you something mediocre and you'll turn into a winning point. If some brought me a great winning deal, but they were not the leader of it. They didn't have the dynamics. And I'm not talking about skill set. I'm talking about personality, ability to drive people, lead people, create energy that I'm not in. Bar rescue me really this whole premise of causing people to expose themselves, Erica. You know, and, and sometimes, you know, when you say something and the classic psychiatrist says, I'm not going to do this, but, well, the truth comes after the but, not before it, <laughs> right? right. So, so I can't do all these kinds of things. To me, I find that if I can get you angry, if I can get you yeah. in this moment, you're going to come clean. Yeah. You might not know it, but you're going to come yes. clean. Yep. So, I might call you a bum so you come back and defend yourself. So I see what it is within you that causes you to defend yourself. Now we can talk about it. I might attack your pride. So you start pounding your child. Not but those moments, you know, you start to reveal. I might show you a picture of your kid. You're losing your business. This kid's never going to go. And see if you tear up and if those emotions are powerful. And maybe that's causing you to be paralyzed. There's a method to this approach of mine of attacking your pride, attacking your person. I mean, I'll call you a lousy mother, a lousy woman, a lousy CEO. I'm crazy until I get you to burst. And in that burst is this opportunity to change. So it's, it's scary. It's I mean, you awesome. got to have the balls to do it. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also so cute because what you're, what you're ultimately doing is just cutting through all the bullshit. I was just thinking about, like, do you think it's actually the same exact things that make content great that you're really saying makes a great entrepreneur or a great restaurant owner? or a great promoter. It's like the ability to elicit a reaction, the ability to push people to their wall and to see the truth in a reaction is ultimately what gets you to, to your point, progress. Oh, I agree. You know, great content is compelling. Uh, if I have to create change, that better damn well be compelling too. So, so um, and I never thought about that way. There, there is a definite linkage but, you know, when I'm doing it on TV, I'm making content. But that's not where my head is at, Erica. That's what's about Bar Rescue to me. And, look, you and I know each other pretty well. We're buddies. And, you know, when I'm in that place, I'm just – the cameras somehow disappear for me. And it becomes you and me. <laughs> you know, and I look in your eyes. I also know that if you keep looking at those cameras, this is going to be bullshit. It's not mm -hmm. going to be real. But yet, if I can get you looking at me and I can make this between you and me, all the cameras and everything disappear and it really gets real. So, so uh, uh, I guess Bar Rescue provides me this platform to go at aggressively than I normally would. But shit, I get that hug every episode. Yeah, you so. do. So it makes me go tougher next time. That's you know? right. Yeah, it just conditions you. Tell, tell, tell us about how you came across Dan and Dave. Because I think they have a lot of these qualities too. And I think you embody this when you come into Barstool, where you're so focused 
you are, your energy is focused, your words are focused, your energy, like your, your eyes are focused. Like, and I think these, those two have that in spades as well, but how did you come at, how, what's the origin story of you with Barstool? Okay. So, so this is about eight years ago, maybe, maybe nine years ago, Erica. And, and I did something called blog rescue, which I still believe is on a Barstool it site. Is. <laughs> and it started with Dan reaching out to me, uh, uh, telling me that he had this idea of him and, and Dan cooking a burger and me, you know, critiquing them on cooking this burger. So through our friends, we set up this thing at Barney's Beanery in, in Hollywood, mm-hmm. California, in Santa Monica Boulevard. And it started with the cooking contest. Now, I must say, in, in Port Noise defense, I had a bit of a friendship with Dan ahead of time. Okay. Not much, but we had communicated fibers. Yep. I didn't know Portnoy from hell. <laughs> so, so when I met D- uh, Dave, he wasn't the nicest to me in the beginning. Maybe he was a little cautious, and Dave can be that way. Of course, now I love yep. him. And we, we're, we're close, but maybe a little standoffish in the beginning. So when we started the burger and the drink competition, there's no question I was rooting for Dan. <laughs> Dave seemed like a bit of a prick. He wasn't being nice to me. He was being standoff. I didn't quite understand them yet. So years later when I did pizza review and he said to me, that was a setup. That was a setup. I must say it. I'm going to come clean now. I didn't say it was set up on pizza review, but to you, Erica, it was a fucking setup. There's no question about it. So, so we did the bar, uh, burger cook-off thing, and then we went upstairs. And at the time, uh, Dave and Dan had this infatuation, Justin Bieber. Mm-hmm. And they were doing all these posts and all this stuff with Justin Bieber. So I was pissed because this is sports. Barstool sports. Yeah, what you doing? I mean, Justin Bieber can even throw a fucking baseball. I don't even know. But, but so we did blog rescue, and I will never forget when I walked out, I said, bloggers, you guys are schlaggers. <laughs> <laughs> and I slammed the door and walked out. But I understand that's been a very popular uh, It's a, a very popular that video. That's like a, a one of lore. Yeah, but that was the first time we physically met. Really? It was actually during that video, yeah. And then I remember you had come to HQ2. So you had come to our old office in New York City times. And there's another very famous video of you with office manager Brett, who uh, office manager Brett. So just to give a little bit of a backstory. So I I joined Barstool and there were, you know, 12, let's say 13 guys. And I needed to find kind of a a gopher, an assistant. I needed somebody to, to, to do that. So I rented there was no office in New York and I rented uh, a WeWork room and I interviewed 30 guys and you know, they were, some of them were too stooly ish and some of them were overqualified. And then there's kid and with a hole in his suit and he sold me on everything he did for the Denver Broncos, just sold on what he did for the Denver Broncos. And he seemed like a nice kid. He seemed like he was capable he said he could start tomorrow. And I was like, great, we're going to hire this. Lo and behold, person was office manager, Brett. So flash forward, you come an office manager, Brett tried hard, has greatness in his own mind. He was a dreamer and he fucked up like, I mean, epically fucked up on a daily basis. Right. So he just, was, office manager, Brett was special. 
uh, lost Dave's clothes after the Super Bowl, would book me on an airline and say it was a different airline or I'd be at the wrong airport. I mean, it was constant. But then you come into town and I forget what the context was. It was about sending an email to someone. But do you remember your conversation with office manager, Brett? I do. And that was one of my favorite uh, uh, stoolie moments of all time. So I walk into the conference room. I'm not even supposed to be there. Right. You were unannounced. I, I was unannounced. I was doing another show. But look, you know, when I go to Barstool headquarters, I got a lot of buddies yep. there. I feel like I'm at home. So I walked around and I walked in. And Portnoy, these guys were doing their show. Yep. And, and office manager, what was his name? Office manager? Brett. Brett. Office manager Brett had fucked up. They had, they had an intern program going. And yes. They were recruiting interns. And it posted online and a couple hundred people had sent letters and Brett never answered any of them. So what happened was not enough people came in for interviews, but he didn't even provide the courtesy of response. So, so Dave was a little, you know, perturbed yeah, that he didn't communicate with more people right. and stuff. So I looked at him and said, you know, Brett, if you work for me, I fire your ass. Think about this courteous ass for you go to work for a company, Barstool Sports. You love it. You respect it. You're glad you're here, but you don't even answer the people. And I went crazy and it got pretty heated. I think it might be Portnoy's favorite moment while I was there. It, maybe. it was a top moment with office manager. <laughs> no longer here, but RIP office manager, Brett, uh, moved to Texas. It was okay, another so fun moment of mine. Oh, What? I don't remember when it was, but I was walking through the offices one day and some guys walking by eating a pizza, pizza, slice a triangular pizza, and he's eating it from the crust first, sort of sideways. Hmm. And I stopped him in a hallway and I guess the cameras sort of follow me when I'm yeah. there. And I looked at him and I said, what kind of a fucking asshole are you? Where are you from? Says Connecticut. You don't eat pizza in New York like that. Well, he, anyway, so I beat the hell out of him from eating this pizza, took the pizza away from him, had to do another pizza, and that was sort of funny. That one just happened in a hall. We have to find that one. It's I don't around know somewhere. I don't somewhere. know that one, John Taffer. All right, I love it. Um, speaking of restaurants, I want to switch gears a little bit. So I came on your podcast. We talked about what was happening in the world around coronavirus and the quarantine. Like, what do you see happening right now in the restaurant and bar and entertainment business? Well, you know, some are getting their stride, Erica. You know, they're figuring out the delivery and a curbside thing, and they're not making money, but they figured out a way to sustain this and sort of keep it going uh, uh, until the pandemic ends. Others have not found that groove, you know, that, that niche where they need land with delivery and to go. It's not working for them. So we're still going to lose a, a significant percentage. I know we've lost, according to the National Restaurant Association, close to 5% now. Wow. So not I think in every 5% of restaurants, over, Finny. not reopening. Yep, Finney. So, so, you know, I think, unfortunately, that number goes up over these next few weeks, especially if we experience a surge, as it looks like we might. Mm. Now, now, I'm on a board of a charity, of a hospital, a very famous hospital, it doesn't matter, but, but uh, I get very good medical information. And, and I am very confident that we'll have a vaccine by October. I believe that very strongly. That so, would be so, great. Cause can you imagine losing another 5%? Like how hard is like these people put, a restaurant is a special place. Like a bar is a special place. Like it's a community and you kind of put your life, you pour, literally pour your life into it. 
you you don't it's not exceedingly lucrative by by my view for right. very long time or unless you do a lot of things with your business so most of them are just average people who have a desire to serve other people to create an, a great environment to serve great food or drink and it's hard to get that it's exhausting life i i think that's the other thing people don't don't realize about that business is how how intensive the service business is and then to have it you know kind of ripped out from under you it's hard to think about getting started and doing it again it's a real estate business you have to get capital it's going to be harder to get like what do you see there for entrepreneurs in this space what do you say to them well you know it, it depends upon what side of the fence you're on an existing restaurant you really have to make a decision now if you're not making money do you close for a few weeks hold your resource you can open properly. What I want about Erica is these restaurants are going to spend all their money sustaining themselves during losses mm-hmm. that they run out of money. You know, it's almost like what Vince Lombardi said, I didn't football game. I ran out of time. These people are going to run out of money. Mm-hmm. They might not make it to the chance when they can recoup those losses. So I'm very worried that we're spending too much money sustaining at a time we can't make money rather than holding those resources. And Until we can we, come back. And, and coming back with a bang, you know, and, and, and hitting hard. But, you know, restaurant owners are interesting. And I'm going to do another intent correlation with you. You know, people post content and they see what happens. Either people love the content, they embrace you, they love you. You and I get to know that we have fans that love us. Boy, that feels unbelievable. It's like getting hugged by them every day. The restaurant operator is the same. He puts out food, that's his content. He builds this environment, that's his content. He lives on the reactions that he gets. Those are great restaurant operators. They want to see the look on your face, Erica, when you walk in. They want you to click like, so to speak. They want you to add a comment. They want you to share it and refer somebody else there. They're emotionally attached to their content. Just like, you know, we are sure, in the content internet. Yeah. So, so when it's taken away from them, and now the numbers go back down, and people aren't in, and now you're losing, the feeling of personal rejection is very powerful. And you're right, these are family businesses, it's like their mm-hmm. living room, the mm-hmm. some of these people. And they love their connections with their customers. So, They've lost their business. They've lost their social aspect. They've lost their energy every day. These are people that work 20 hours a day. And you're right. It's not such a high profit business. You know, if they make 12, 15% on every dollar, that's an awful yeah. lot. Uh, uh, you got to take in a lot of dollars to make money. Yep. So it's a scary time. Let's go to the other side of the fence for a second. I just sold my Taffer's Tavern. You know, I'm developing. Yes, I want to. I talk about that. We just sold uh, the Boston territory for five units. Okay. Two weeks ago. Congratulations. And those operators have other franchises, you okay. know, they're significant restaurant operators. They wanted the brand because they believe in the next two to three months, some of the greatest restaurant locals in America are going to become available. Hmm. They believe that in the next two to three months, landlords are going to be very aggressive in leases sure. and tenant allowing packages, construction and packages. So they see a fallout, but they see opportunity in that fallout. Next level of entrepreneurs to take these spaces that are already built out, Erica, you know that, so it saves a huge amount sure. of money. The bars are there, all the, the utilities. The infrastructure and exists and you, you get cheap rent and you and have a a brand loved and recognized and is known for quality. Bingo. So 
So, so there's a side of the industry that is seeing this as an opportunity because they have the resources to exploit that opportunity. Sure. In the next and the wherewithal so, to capitalize. Yeah. So there's two sides of the fence. Not that I wish to fall out for the other guy of to come and take the rest of them. But the fact of the matter is it's the evolution of an industry. And, you know, I remember uh, uh, years ago, you and I might have been communicating on prodigy. <laughs> There was an evolution in in your industry too. And I think we're going to see the brands that we've never heard of are going to explode during this thing because they're safe and they have the right product lines and they communicate well. I think we're going to see legacy brands disappear. Some of them. I agree with that. I think, um, I think something really interesting is happening where only the most beloved brands or known brands the brands with the 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 most juice around them are going to serve whether it's a restaurant a college and you have to have the product you have to have the quality behind it content restaurants colleges apparel companies like you name it that's vacation destination that's what's going to happen um wait john before i let you go from taffer's tavern tell me a little bit about the safe dining system so in taffer's tavern we create robotic kitchen. Okay. And I have a partner called Middleby who is the largest producer of kitchen equipment. We've been working on a robotic sous vide, which is cooking in vacuum. Yes. The actual definition of sous vide. Really high end of cooking. So we sous vide and robotic cooking to create a kitchen where nobody actually touches the food. There's no raw product. Everything is cooked within four to six minutes in a restaurant. It's really an exciting system of cooking. And it runs half the labor cost of a traditional restaurant. So it really started pre-vid, Erica. I was focused on solving the problem that we had no labor pool. If you remember, we yes. were out of employees. But that's how good the economy was. Right. We were going up to $15 wages. And the labor pool that was available were the new Americans who didn't speak English so well. So they were more of a challenge to train. So I wanted to create a kitchen that had minimal training, minimal staff to address all these issues. And when I was finished, I came up with the perfect COVID kitchen. Yeah. So, so we're really excited about it. Unwittingly. It was in Atlanta in September. And you'll get an invite, of course. Oh, cool. Um, so kind of to that end, John, one of the things that I've always really learned a lot from you and your books, even before I knew you, um, and I always really appreciated is I think that you're someone who can, you don't just see the problem, you actually are able to look back at why is there a problem? Like, and, and I find that that's important in anybody's job is like, not just what's happening. I think it's very easy to just feel things about what's happening or complain about what's happening or just sit and sit back and watch what's happening versus deconstructing why, why things are a problem in the first place. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like how can, how can people harness that or how can people become better at that, whether it's in their life, in their restaurant, in their business, in their job, you name it. You know, in about the 120th episode of Bar Rescue, I was in Detroit, Michigan, rescuing a bar. Uh, uh, and the owner came up to me and, she, and I said to her, why are you failing? And she looked at me and she said, I'm failing because of the euro in Greece. This is suburban Detroit, Michigan. And after that day, I realized I had done 120 bar rescues. And every time, Erica, I asked him, why are you failing? Why? And never once had an owner looked at me and said, I'm failing because of me, John. Not one time. Every son of a bitch. It's the 
weather, it's corruption, it's the mayor, it's the government, it's Congress, it's the Euro, and reason that they're failing acceptance of it. And then I thought this through and I realized that, wait a minute, if I woke up in the morning and blame my failures on someone or something else, I have no reason to change, do I? Right. And then I said to myself, what is an excuse? Because that's what they're doing. They're creating an excuse. And the Euro in Greece was an excuse. An excuse is nothing but the reconciliation of a failure. Either you did something you shouldn't have, you didn't do something you should have, or you otherwise screwed up. So you create an excuse. And think about how both, so we create this excuse that makes us feel good about failure. But the reality of it is, in recessions, people made money. Pandemics, people make money. So, you know, all of these bullshit. So I realized I found a common denominator of failure. It's an excuse. It paralyzes us. So then I went a step further. And this is my last book, Don't BS Yourself. What are the big excuses? Well, fear. Well, you know, you're scared of things millions have already done in business and in life. You know, fear is BS. And then the next one is circumstance. Well, it's a tough circumstance. Well, that to the people who lived through World War II, you know, to people who went through the last mm -hmm. recession, this pandemic, that's bullshit too. You can make money in this circumstance. And then scarcity is another one. Oh, I don't have time. Oh, I don't have money. Tell that to Stephen Job in his garage, right? Mm -hmm. Who started mm -hmm. with pretty much nothing. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, all of these excuses tend to hold us back. So, on the other hand, if you wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, I'm failing because of me, you won't freaking like it. And, and then you'll change. So I hate to be so cliche if you will, but accountability and owning failure is the key. If you own failure, you won't like it and you'll find success. If you excuse failure, then you're just on a path to do yeah, it. Yeah, nothing will ever change. Yeah. It's funny. I watched a video this weekend. There was a a video that was going around at Annapolis and um, it was on Instagram and it was an instructor talking to a bunch of cadets or there were a bunch of people in athletic, they clearly were about to do a boot camp or something. And the, what the instructor was saying was, you know, he talked about, he was in Afghanistan for seven months and he slept, you know, it was 120 degrees every day or 110 degrees every day. And he slept in the sand and he had to shit in a bag and then he burned it. And there was, you know, he only had water and he talked about how he, he could have thought that that was hell. And instead he chose a new set of eyes which was to really look at it as an opportunity for himself. And then he went, he, the, the video goes through all sorts of people, whether they've spent time in prison or they were in a prison camp or they were detained or they were poor or they were injured or an amputee, like all these examples, which what the message was is it's all about the eyes that you have on the world. And if your eyes aren't looking, if you're not clear who you are and how accountable you, how you think and look at things, not everything is going to be horrible and your circumstance will never change. And I think you're saying the same thing, which is if you blame the Euro or, you know, I look at this with Quibi, I'm so critical of Quibi, but you know, you look at Jeffrey Kerr, who is a man who is extremely rich, extremely successful, extremely famous, extremely lauded, and he's blaming the fail failure of his new platform on a pandemic, which like sure, probably didn't help you. Pan fucking helped really anyone. But if that becomes the excuse, then the, the product is never going to be better. And I think that's what you do so well, is you force people to, to look inside of themselves. I, 
do it. You see, I believe every growing business has a failing owner. And uh, look, look, you know, you built beautiful offices there at Barstool. That was easy. I mean, building the office is easy. Putting the physics, it's easy for me to build bars, build restaurants. I can do that shit all day, Arca. You know that. The question is, can I turn a, a losing owner into a winning owner? And, and, you know, if he's a losing owner when I'm done, I can build him the fucking Taj Mahal. It doesn't yeah. matter. He's still going to fail. And if I can turn the guy into a winner, I can build him something almost very average and he'll mm-hmm. succeed. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it all comes back to that individual. So, so business models are wonderful. We need to do them. Budgets are wonderful. We need to do it. But make no mistake, people lead business. People lead success. People drive revenue. People are the ones that make it all happen. No matter how computerized or digital our world gets, at the end of the day, it's people that make this happen. I love that. I agree with it. Um, John, tell me a little bit about your seltzer. We're big oh. Big fans of salsa around here. I know you are. So I have to send you a few cases. I'll get a few cases I sent out. So we have seven. Two years I've been working on this son of a bit. So most seltzers are malt-based, right? In essence, yep. they're flavored they're, beer. Yep. yep. So, so they're sort of heavy on your tongue. Yep. This is based in orange wine. Oh, interesting. So it's an orange, orange wine. Seltzer. So the orange wine gives it a slight citrusy taste, but it's much lighter on your tongue. It's still 5% alcohol, still 100 calories, but it's still uh, lighter on your tongue. Very different than other seltzers in the market. So I'm going to send you a couple of Oh, cases. I can't wait. You like it out of it. I love that. All right. So we have two fucking good things today, John Taffer. I gave myself one. And what I would like to know from you is what's your one fucking good thing? Hmm. I'm fired up about getting the fuck out of here tomorrow. You know, I've been in this house for a hundred days. I'm taking a trip tomorrow. I have a big bus. I was telling you, and, and I'm taking a trip across America tomorrow. You know, in bar rescue and in my life, I get to travel a lot. I get to see people go to small towns, big towns. I love our country. You know, I love the people out there, whether they're wearing a cowboy hat or a black leather jacket, you know, it doesn't matter. I love, so, so I haven't been out there in a long time. So, Fucking A, I want to get I out there. So I'm that. leaving tomorrow and I'm excited about it. When I used to like walk around New York and if you didn't have that A rating in your window, you were like, eat, don't want to, don't want to eat there. So Cam Sanitize can help you clean your restaurant, clean your business, clean your home. These guys are a studio owned business. They know everything there is to know about cleaning, disinfecting your home, making it spick and span, uh, and making sure that it is free of COVID-19. What I like about Cam Sanitize, besides the fact that these are good guys, is that they know their shit when it comes to cleaning. So they have hospital-grade disinfectant. They have pet-safe, electronic-safe, skin-safe, food-safe, kids-safe. Their products are top quality. They get the job done. They thoroughly disinfect your place. And it's ready for you to go. It's ready to be back in there 10 minutes after they're done. So visit camsanitize.com or call 866-41-CLEAN. And if you use code BARSTOOL, you'll get a 15% off discount. All right. So that was it for today's episode. Big talk about gamers, which is something that I'm very interested in trying to learn more about. Always great to hear from John Taffer. I love what he's doing in his own restaurants. I think it's interesting when technology innovation designed to solve one problem actually solves another. I'm very hopeful that the restaurant industry comes back and that cities come back and that people can go out and be together. So before I leave you, I'm going to give you my one fucking good thing. My one fucking good thing is presented by High Noon. So High Noon is the real deal. It's real vodka. It's real juice. It's real delicious. 
I'm big on the peach flavor and I'm also kind of partial to pineapple. Um, so if you haven't tried High Noon, it is delicious. I highly recommend it. The best place to get it is in the supermarket because the liquor stores seem all sorts of sold out. Um, you can't find the product anywhere, which I guess is a good problem to have. But overall, love High Noon uh, and go get High Noon or drizzle yourself some High Noon as soon as you can. It's perfect for the weekend. Um, but my one fucking good thing is that I fell skating. So I had hockey practice. I don't know if you call it hockey practice. I skated the other morning at 630. It was awesome. Everybody makes fun of me. Kelly Babstock just yells at me all the time because I'm so uptight. I don't really feel like an uptight person, but I get a little scared on the ice and I've just been scared to fall. And what they say is that basically if like you're not falling, you're really not skating because you're not putting yourself out there. Um, And I think that's just kind of a good message for anybody, which is that if you're not you know, if you're afraid to fall, it's really hard to, to make progress and go farther. And I sometimes forget that. And I definitely forget that on the ice. So anyways, I was skating. It was like me, there was a bunch of goalies out there. And then like the only people skating at six 30 in the morning, I feel like people who are actually going places in hockey and then there's me. But anyways, I, so I completely bit it, like wiped out. I was like, on my outside or my inside edge, my inside edges are like a horrible problem. But anyways, I completely took a digger and it was just one of the best moments ever. It was like my best day of skating because I actually think I could be a hockey player now. So that is my one fucking good thing. For more on that, you can check out my Instagram stories. And if you haven't already, uh, give us a rating, leave us a review, send us your suggestions for how we make the podcast better and what you like about it and what you don't.